Hello again, everyone, wherever you may be, and welcome to the 155th edition of KQI Community Radio's Capital Week, your window on the world of Iowa politics, where we explore and analyze who's been making news in and around the state capitol, what that news is, and what it all means. We are glad you're with us. I'm Dennis Hart, joined as always by my partner in politics, Laura Bellin of the blog site Bleeding Heartland. Welcome, Laura. Well, happy Iowa caucus night, Dennis. Laura, this is indeed it. Iowa caucus night, the night we have been talking about and waiting for on this broadcast for the entire last year. The night it all starts for Republicans in choosing this year's presidential candidate. Democrats are also going to meet tonight, but what they're doing is not nearly as impactful as what the GOP will do. It's not uh, difficult to understand how the eyes of the nation's political world will be focused on us in Iowa tonight. Well, Laura, we have plenty to talk about, including the final Des Moines Register poll that came out yesterday morning, and it showed Trump with a big lead. Take it, Laura. Yes, Trump was is still way ahead of the rest of the field by more than 25 points. He has 48% support among likely GOP caucus scores. The big headline from this poll was that Nikki Haley got ahead of Ron DeSantis in second place. This is the first poll by Ann Seltzer, the pollster for the Des Moines Register, to show that. Haley was at 20%. DeSantis was at 16%. And Vivek Ramaswamy was still in fourth place, but he had moved up from 5% to 8%. Uh, Ann Seltzer, one thing that I noticed about the article in the Des Moines Register accompanying this poll that I've never seen before is that Ann Seltzer seemed to question her own results because she emphasized that Haley supporters are less enthusiastic than those who are planning to caucus for Trump or DeSantis. And so that raises questions about well whether they'll actually show up in this kind of weather on Monday night. That poll also showed that Haley supporters are more likely to vote for President Biden instead of Donald Trump in November. Yes. And I saw a number of reporters who were in Iowa today and talking to people at events, Haley events, and several of them commented on that, that they were finding a lot of people who were saying that they would not vote for Trump in a general election again. Uh, Nikki Haley was asked about that on Fox News this afternoon, and she said that she would vote for Trump. She would vote for any Republican nominee, but we're going to make sure, she said, that we that we give people a different choice. One more note from that poll, it showed that most likely GOP caucus scores say a Trump conviction, and he's facing 91 criminal charges, would not affect their support. And that is consistent with what we've seen with the other polling. And and again, supporters of Donald Trump are the most enthusiastic and the most locked in. That's been consistent across all of the Seltzer polls and all of the polls by other po- uh, by other surveyors. Incidentally, uh, several other polls released in the last week showed Trump above 50%. This Des Moines Register poll showed him at 48%. And on Saturday night, for the first time, Donald Trump posted something on his Truth Social Network that was very critical of Vivek Ramaswamy. And it made me wonder whether perhaps the Trump team's internal polling is showing Ramaswamy moving up just a little bit and that that is coming out of Trump support. Before those polls came out last week, Chris Christie dropped out of the presidential race. But before he did, he was caught on a hot mic saying that Nikki Haley was going to get smoked and that she's not up to this. He also had some comments about Ron DeSantis. Yes, it was hard to understand exactly what he meant by Ron. He said that Ron DeSantis called him petrified. But but uh, he didn't explain why DeSantis was apparently petrified, and he didn't comment on that. I have to tell you, for someone who's been involved in politics as long as Chris Christie, 
he has to know that you assume that every mic is a live mic, right? I mean, why would you say something like that when you've got a mic, even if you think that it's off? So of course that tended to overshadow a little bit his comments. And by the way, he did not endorse Nikki Haley either. He said that leaving the race was the right thing for him to do because, and I'm quoting now, I want to promise you that I am going to make sure that I in no way enable Donald Trump ever to be president of the United States again. So he is quite bitter against Trump. Yes. And he talked about how he was one of the first people after he dropped out of the 2016 race, he was one of the first people to endorse Trump. And he said, I'd known him for a long time. I thought that I could influence him and make him a better candidate or a better president. And he said, it's one of his big regrets. And that I think that's part of the reason why he got in this race. I mean, of course, he's never really had a chance, a realistic chance of becoming the GOP nominee. But I think that he's almost trying to atone for the mistakes he perceives that he made in 2016. So all the political gurus with nothing else to do except to guess things are wondering where Chris Christie supporters are going to go. Will Nikki Haley get many of them? Will she get a boost in New Hampshire? Well, the polls that I saw last week definitely showed that a plurality of those who said that they were planning to vote for Christie would go for Nikki Haley. I think that it's really important for Haley to finish in second place tonight in the caucuses because the second place candidate often gets a big bump in New Hampshire. It's it's a, a little bit paradoxical, but Dan Guild, who occasionally writes for Bleeding Heartland, and even though he's based in New Hampshire, he has studied the history of the Iowa caucuses a lot. And he noticed this in the data that the, the winner of the Iowa caucuses gets less of a bump in New Hampshire than the second place candidate in the Iowa caucuses. So shortly after Christie departed the race last week, there was this CNN debate, DeSantis versus Haley Wednesday night at Drake University. Uh, I'll start out just by saying it was two hours of verbal combat. I mean, they were slashing and burning each other. They were. I thought the moderators did a reasonably good job of trying to keep the conversation on track. I thought they were asking direct questions, not convoluted questions. But really, there were so many attacks on each other. And Haley kept uh, encouraging viewers to go visit their her campaign's website that they set up called DeSantisLies.com. Uh, DeSantis has also set up a website that includes video clips and examples of Haley saying things that, that supposedly she denies saying. So it was really a lot. And of course, they hardly laid a glove on Donald Trump as usual. She said that DeSantis was desperate and failing um, because and lying because he was losing. Meanwhile, DeSantis sought to cast Haley as too mealy-mouthed and liberal for the GOP. I thought that of all of the attacks that went back and forth, I thought one of the most effective ones came from Haley. When she mentioned this more than once, she said that Ron DeSantis has blown through $150 million his campaign has. He's gone down in the polls and he's not competing anywhere else. He said, how can you be competing with for the nomination? She said, if you're not competing in the other states and that she has somewhere to go after Iowa. And I think people who are wanting to have a different option besides Donald Trump, I think that gave them a reason to consider supporting her. DeSantis coined something new I'd never heard before. He accused Haley of ballistic podiatry, which means shooting herself in the foot from yeah. her recent verbal stumbles. I mean, he's, yeah, he, I don't think he's the best speaker. I don't think anyone would ever say that he's the best speaker. And his delivery on some of these lines was, it, it sounded a little bit canned to me. But when he said, the crowd seemed to like it when he said, you can take the ambassador out of the United Nations, but not the United Nations out of the ambassador. All right. So they went on and just slashed and burned each other, as I said. But while that was going on on CNN, Trump was holding a televised town hall on Fox 
in Des Moines, an event, by the way, that drew twice as many viewers as the CNN debate. Right. And one thing that we never know when we're talking about ratings of these things is how many people watching were actually Iowa caucus goers or even more so undecided Iowa caucus goers. It's really hard to say. I think that nobody said anything either at during the debate or in Trump's town hall. Nobody made such a huge gaffe that it then dominated the news coverage and would affect the campaign. I think that that's the biggest danger with these final debates that come shortly before an election is that if a candidate makes a big mistake, then that just takes over everything else. He did say when he was on Fox that he'd already decided on a VP running mate for the general election, but gosh, he did not name the person. It's interesting that that hasn't leaked out. I mean, I would have thought that somebody in Trump's camp would leak that out by now. Yep. All right. We're not going to go over a lot of campaigning this weekend because you know what? The campaigning's over and we're in caucusing right now. The caucuses began as we went on the air just a few minutes ago at seven o'clock. We're going to start getting results in perhaps a few minutes. But we, there is one thing. Trump appeared in Indianola on Sunday and he said, and I'm going to quote him now, you cannot sit home if you're sick as a dog, even if you vote and pass away, it's worth it. Yeah. And he actually got a laugh from some of the people in the audience when he said that on the video. It was, by the way, I did not attend the the Indianola rally, but I did watch it online. So that was quite striking. I thought what was most interesting to me is that he spends, you know, he tends to recycle a lot of the same material, right, about the the his false claims about the election being stolen from him and so on. But he usually spends a lot more time attacking Ron DeSantis than Nikki Haley. And it was flipped around in Indianola. He spent a lot more time on Haley. He said she's not up to the job. I know her. She calls her bird brain. I, he talks about allegedly all of these problems. And he did talk about DeSantis, who he continues to call either DeSanctus or DeSanctimonious, but he didn't spend nearly as much time. And so that also made me wonder if his internal polling is showing Nikki Haley in second place as well. All right, let's go to what's happening right now in Iowa at 7.09 p.m. on this Monday night. These may be the coldest caucuses, likely will be the coldest caucuses ever held in the state. It is seven below zero right now in Ames on this Monday night. Laura, let's just do some guesstimating. We think it's going to affect turnout, but whose turnout? It's definitely going to affect turnout. And by the way, seven below is the actual temperature. That's not even talking about the wind chill. The wind chill is worse than that. So it's a combination of extreme cold. And Iowans are used to it being cold in January, right? But this is really very extreme. And also the fact that after we had hardly any snow all winter, we got these two major storm fronts last week that dumped a ton of snow. Most parts of Iowa got well over a foot of snow if you combine the, the two storms. And then it didn't get warm enough for any of that to melt. So the roads are in terrible condition. There are a lot of rural roads that haven't been plowed at all. Even in the cities that have been plowed, there are a lot of roads that have quite a bit of snow cover on it. And there's no question in my mind that thousands of people will be unable to attend their caucus who had every intention. And I frankly feel sad about it because I was curious to see whether the Republicans would have a chance to break their turnout record that was around 187,000 in 2016, or whether it would be closer to the 2012 turnout, which was about 122,000. And now, I mean, I wonder if they'll even make it to that 2012 level, because it's, it is just going to be physically difficult for a lot of people to get there. There's a lot of guesstimating going on tonight about whether Trump's people will be affected more than Haley's people or DeSantis's people. Haley is said to have more support in urban areas and the roads may be cleared there. Trump's people may be older and less likely to go out. It's a guessing game. 
Yes, I think that Trump is going to be least hurt by it because every poll that we've ever seen shows that his supporters are the most enthusiastic and most excited about caucusing. And I can just tell you, having been a precinct captain before the Democratic caucuses of 2004 and 2008, that people are more motivated to go out on a cold January night if they think that they're on the team that's going to win. And so when I think about Ron DeSantis's campaign, which has the Never Back Down Super PAC, which built a, a very strong ground game. And yet when your guy is scrapping for second place, I think that that's less motivating for people than Trump has been telling people at every rally, we've really got to put up huge numbers. We've got to end this thing right here. So the question is for a lot of folks listening to us right now, how will they find out about the results? Well, the Republican Party has a public website which is going to have the results of each precinct once they've been entered by the precinct's chair and checked for accuracy by party staff. I've been on that website. It seems simple enough, and they're going to start putting results up pretty darn quickly here. It's worth a reminder that the caucuses are party-run operations. They are not run by the Secretary of State or the county auditors, and so they're not an election. It's a party-run process, and so it takes thousands and thousands of volunteers to make this thing work. It's very complicated. There are almost 1,700 precincts across the state of Iowa, and it is just a huge operation to try to get this going. Of course, the Republicans are going to want to avoid the fiasco that happened after the Democratic caucuses of 2020, where the app that was created malfunctioned, and it was days before people knew whether Pete Buttigieg or Bernie Sanders actually won the caucuses. So we are loath to make predictions, but it seems clear that barring some unforeseen event, the former president, Mr. Trump, is going to win the caucuses tonight. But what are other possible outcomes and how important is it for Haley and for DeSantis? I think people will be watching whether Trump ends up above 50% or below. And I actually think he will be above 50%. I think that he's going to have an extremely strong turnout. But if if he is above 50%, that will be unprecedented. But either way, even if he's in the 40s, he's going to win by the largest margin that we've ever seen in a competitive presidential race. Of course, people will be most closely watching who's in second place, I happen to believe that Nikki Haley is going to finish in second, partly because of what you mentioned, that she has a lot of support in urban, suburban areas and college towns where probably the roads are in less bad shape. She kind of has a a coalition that is similar to the Marco Rubio coalition of 2016. And people forget uh, Rubio finished third, but he was only about one percentage point behind Trump, who was in second place. Of course, Ted Cruz won those caucuses. So I think that Nikki Haley has a chance of having a, a strong finish. I think that if Trump is is significantly above 50%, I think that would overshadow the question of who is who who is in second place between Haley and DeSantis. And so one of the questions tonight is what impact, no matter what happens tonight, is it going to have not just in New Hampshire, which is next week, what impact will the finish tonight have nationally in the race? Well, I don't think that there's any real chance that Trump is not going to be the nominee. I mean, he is so strong. Nikki Haley is closing on him in New Hampshire. But so if if she had a strong showing tonight, there's an outside chance that she could win the New Hampshire primary. But then they go to South Carolina, where she is trailing by a lot, even though it's her home state. And when you start looking at the Super Tuesday states, I mean, it's just really hard to see how Donald Trump could possibly be defeated. I would say that if Haley finishes in third place behind DeSantis, then it really, the nomination almost certainly would be over tonight because DeSantis is running well behind of everybody else in New Hampshire. He's not going to get a significant bounce there. And he doesn't have much of an operation in South Carolina or the Super Tuesday states either. 
So the caucuses have traditionally, and they certainly did this year, uh, got, drawn their share of criticism as being we're an unrepresentative state, uh, it's too difficult a process. But actually, when you look at it, Laura, as we have continually over the last year, they did their job this year, and their job primarily is not to select the candidate, it's to winnow the field, and the caucuses did just that. Well, I'm not sure the caucuses did. I think that the Republican National Committee's criteria for the televised debates are what really winnowed the field, because we saw most of the people who dropped out did when they stopped qualifying for the televised debates. And so so many candidates were out of the race well before. And by the way, I forgot to mention earlier that Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota, came to Indianola and endorsed Donald Trump at that rally on Sunday. But I I mean, they, they certainly, the caucus does winnow the field, but they used to say there are three tickets out of Iowa. And I think this year, the perception is more that there might only be two tickets out of Iowa. We've talked about vote counting. There's also a money aspect to all of this. The caucuses boost the local economy tremendously by bringing people in. They stay in hotels, they eat in restaurants. But this year, the Moines Register reported that the caucuses are expected to generate $4.2 million in direct economic impact to Des Moines compared to with $11 million uh, in 2020. And the primary reason for the drop, and this is troubling, the number of media outlets and the number of people credentialed have gone way down. Well, it, it's not as interesting a race. I mean, in 2020, you had very competitive, uh, a very competitive Democratic race. There was a lot of uncertainty about who was going to be the nominee. There were a lot of candidates working hard. And all of the polls point to the same thing on the Republican side now. I will say that I was on a call, a Zoom call earlier, and Scott Brennan, who's a DNC member from Iowa, former state party chair, said that when he's been interacting with journalists in Des Moines this past week, they're very bored. I mean, there's just it's not as interesting a campaign to cover. And that's part of the reason is that everybody already knows who the winner is going to be. And part of it is that the number of media outlets has declined. Newspapers have declined in four years. Uh, there are fewer radio reporters out there and probably fewer TV reporters. That's true. And even the ones who that are still existing, they have cut their newsroom staff so they don't have somebody necessarily to send to Iowa for the week before the caucuses. All right. Well, as we say, the caucuses are going on right now as we were on the air and we are going to be on the air bright and early tomorrow morning, Tuesday at six o'clock. That's right. Six o'clock in the morning with a special live edition of Capital Week to talk about what happens tonight during the caucuses. So why not go ahead, set your alarm and get up with us early at six o'clock. Join us for breakfast. All right. What are you having for breakfast tomorrow morning, Laura? Do you know? <laughs> I'll probably have yogurt. That's what I have most days. But yes, we'll be talking about the caucus. And then after that, we'll be talking about what happened last week in Iowa politics, because there sure was a lot. There sure was a lot. And we have a little bit of time to talk about that uh, as we go on with this broadcast. But if you oversleep tomorrow, I want to emphasize tomorrow's broadcast will be rerun on Wednesday at noon. So you can catch us either time. And I should tell you that it is 19 minutes after the hour, wherever you're listening to us in the world. And you are in tune with KHOI Radio's Capital Week on this Monday night, caucus night. We're your one-stop source for everything political going on in Iowa. I'm Dennis Hart with Laura Bellin. And I've said that for three years, and I'm happy to have Laura here every night with us on Monday nights. And we're here to talk politics, Iowa style, and how it's affecting all of us. Three years, Laura, three years. It's been a great time, Dennis. Really enjoying it. Uh, And I do, too. Uh, There was a terrible story, again, out of Perry, and this was on Sunday morning. The principal, wounded in that high school shooting two weeks ago, died yesterday morning, 56-year-old Dan Marburger. It was so sad. And according to the media accounts, he had tried to distract the shooter 
while it was going on to help more students get out of the high school. Of course, it happened before school when they were serving a breakfast program in the cafeteria, and he put himself in harm's way. He literally took bullets for kids at the school. And I was so sad by the news. I had thought last week that I had heard that the, the people who are still hospitalized were in stable condition, but his wife, Elizabeth, announced that he had passed away and the governor ordered flags to be flown at half staff around the state today as a result. He had been the principal at Perry since 1995. His death came 10 days after the shooting. And as you say, his wife posted an online message saying in her words, and this brought me to tears, he fought hard and gave us 10 days that we will treasure forever. Yes, I mean, it's just such a terrible story. Meanwhile, last Thursday, the funeral was held for that 11-year-old boy who was shot and killed in Perry, Amir Jolif. Yes, and many people showed up, an overcapacity crowd. Governor Reynolds was there. Zach Nunn, the member of Congress who represents the Dallas County area, was there as well. And I know that the family, uh, Amir Jolif was the youngest of five. And um, in it's just, how could you get over something that devastating? Again, our very best wishes go to the community of Perry and everybody affected by this. We wish you nothing but the best and Godspeed. Mm-hmm. And- all we can say. Yes. So last week there was other news and uh, not involving caucuses. And this one, probably the biggest news, Governor delivered, Governor Reynolds, her condition of the state address, and she called for several things. Yes, the the governor's condition of the state always happens on Tuesday, the, the day after the opening of the legislative session. And she had, as expected, she had previewed this a little bit that she was going to raise teacher pay, but she gave some more details during that address. She is planning to uh, increase to have a minimum starting salary of fifty thousand dollars, and after twelve years, uh, teachers would have to be paid at least sixty-two thousand dollars. And so, in some districts, teachers are already earning more than that, but in other districts, that would be significant, and it might help some of Iowa's smaller school districts recruit and retain staff. The governor actually spent a lot of her speech on education. She touted the laws she has signed in recent years to let all Iowa families have access to state-funded scholarships to pay private school costs. And she said, and we know this is coming in the state legislature, she said Iowa's area education agencies are the next state organizations that she believes need to be overhauled. Yes, and I I have a story that I'm working on related to this. I just didn't have time to finish it before the caucuses. But she gave the speech on Tuesday evening, and on Wednesday morning, her the, her office's bill was introduced in the legislature. It's a bill that spans more than 100 pages covering these changes to the area education agencies that serve kids with disabilities and also offer services to school districts. And that bill also includes the teacher pay proposal. And meanwhile, the State Department of Education is already forging ahead as if that bill has been adopted. I mean, it has not even taken the first step in the legislative process but the State Department of Education is already hiring people in the new division that they're going to create to oversee the area education agencies. You know, we probably ought to spend a minute talking about what they do. Uh, under current law, Iowa school districts send their state and federal money for special education to one of the state's nine AEAs, and then they rely on those AEAs to provide special education services for their students. The governor's plan would give school districts a choice in how they use the money. Yes, and, and but the governor's bill, I mean, here's the thing. The School districts, the school boards, the school administrators, they're very against this proposal initially. Basically, everybody who is registered on it almost has registered against it. Only the governor's office is registered for it. And the issue is that 
you can give the money directly to the school districts, but most school districts, especially the smaller ones, would not be able with that funding, they would not be able to hire their own speech therapists, uh, special education teachers. And also there are other services that the AEAs offer like library services, media, and crisis management. There were people from the AEA were in Perry, actually. They sometimes send AEA staff out to schools when there has been a suicide among the student body or of a staff member. And so there are a lot of services that it's not really clear who would pick up the slack. And it's also not clear how the school districts are going to be able to pay for these services if the AEA is not able to offer them. Governor also said, and this was not a surprise, that she wants steeper and faster cuts to lower Iowa's individual income tax rate, faster than the bill she signed in 2022 that would eventually lower the rate to 3.9% flat tax. Yes, she did not say that she wants to bring it to zero, as she had kind of hinted last year that maybe she was on board with the Iowa Senate Republicans who have talked about eliminating the state income tax, but she did not go that far. And I wonder if her staff calculated that that's not really feasible for the budget. We'll have to see that as far as I know that none of these tax proposal bills have been introduced yet, much less debated. So that's going to come a little bit later in the session. Well, the governor delivered her address on Tuesday night, and then on Wednesday, Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen gave her annual condition of the judiciary address, and she actually made a plea for more understanding and some connections. This was very interesting, this speech. It was different from what I've seen. I I would say that it went a, a little bit further toward really asking the legislature to understand what the judiciary is up against. I mean, there have been times when the judicial branch has asked for more money and that's been brought up, but she really focused on how judges are not being paid on a level similar to states that are surrounding Iowa. It's really affecting the ability to get people to want to be judges and remain judges. She talked about some problems with court reporters, and she also pleaded with the legislatures to help them out. She said, I understand that Sometimes there may be decisions by a lower court judge or an appellate court that you don't agree with. And there are also decisions that she said that even she doesn't agree with. But she really wants people to understand that judges are doing their best to interpret the law. And I I thought that that was, to my ear, it sounded a little bit like a rebuke. There were a lot of legislators who were very critical last year when the Iowa Supreme Court did not allow that near total abortion ban from 2018 to go into effect. And I thought that she might be alluding to that. When she mentioned the budget request and and the need to raise judges' salaries and make changes to the judges' pension system, uh, one thing she didn't say was that the governor's proposed budget did not include that extra money for salaries in the judicial branch. And so, but She did publicly appeal to the legislature to pass that. So I'm going to be looking very closely this year to see whether Republican lawmakers are willing to go further than the governor is in funding salaries in the judicial branch. We have a couple of minutes left. Let's go over very quickly a couple of court cases last week. The state of Iowa appealed that federal judge's decision to block enforcement of the law that prohibits instruction about gender ID and sexual orientation in younger grades and ban some books. Yes, this was just announced on Friday afternoon, and I could not get any confirmation from the attorney general's office. The statement talked about 
trying appealing the decision so that Iowa could enforce its law banning what the attorney general called sexually explicit materials in schools. Of course, the law does not say sexually explicit, but it didn't really say whether the state is appealing the portion of the decision that blocked the teaching restrictions on gender identity or sexual orientation. So that was maybe implied, but it wasn't stated. And until I see what they actually file in terms of an appeal, I'm not actually sure whether the state of Iowa is going to be asking the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals to reinstate those teaching restrictions in grades K through six, again, on sexual orientation or gender identity, or if their appeal is going to focus on allowing the state to enforce the school book bans. Remember, that affects all grade levels from K through 12. This is a ban on school library books or other materials that include a description or visual depiction of a sex act. Almost out of time, but quickly, a judge struck down a state law requiring gender balance on judicial commissions. Yeah, so federal judge Stephanie Rose, this surprised me a little bit that she ruled that while the state does have a legitimate interest in ensuring diversity, she thought that the the current rule that requires the elected members of the state judicial nominating commission to be evenly divided between men and women, that that wasn't narrowly tailored and it wasn't tied enough to the, to the state's goal. And so she said that this is unconstitutional under the 14th amendment. And I think the state legislature was probably poised this year to repeal that gender balance requirement. Anyway, this is a law that's been in Iowa since 1987, but I think with this ruling, it all but guarantees that that's going to happen. And it's not going to just affect the state judicial nominating commission. This will affect basically all of the Iowa boards and commissions and also at the local level boards and commissions that have been expected to be gender balanced. The the mandate for local governments is not quite as strong as the one for state government. But in any case, um, that was a little bit of a surprising decision to me. All right. We are just about out of time for this broadcast, but let me tell you what Laura and I will be doing the rest of this evening. We're going to be on our computers in front of television. We're going to be watching the caucus results, and we are going to be with you tomorrow morning to talk about it. I should say first, you've been listening to Capital Week on KHOI Community Radio. The views and opinions expressed here did not necessarily reflect the opinions of KHOI or its staff. All right. Here's the deal. You and I, Laura, will be here live tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning at 6 o'clock in the morning. We're going to talk about what happens tonight in the caucuses. That's pretty early, Laura. It is early, but I'll be ready. And I will, too. We're also, of course, going to discuss everything else interesting, important, or entertaining about politics. But most of what we're going to talk about tomorrow, the caucuses. Anything unusual, anything strange, join us tomorrow morning at 6, rerun Wednesday at noon. Until then, stay warm and good night.